I'm Ivis Galarsip, and it is Wednesday. We're in the middle of what is a very, very busy week in the soccer world. And obviously, there's a lot going on right now with the coronavirus and its impact on the world's game. And, and I know uh, in the big picture of things, uh, what happens with soccer isn't all that important con uh, considering everything else going on and, and considering the health risk and the fact that people are dying and people are at risk of dying because of this uh, pandemic. This, uh, this coronavirus situation. and uh, But we are here to talk about soccer, to try to give people uh, something to take their minds off of everything that's going on and the craziness. And, and I, I know, uh, I'm sure I'm not alone in, in, in being in the middle of of the whole, you know, getting supplies ready and making the run to the supermarket and, and, and get just just not knowing what's going to happen. And I, I know some people say, oh, you know, it's a little bit of too much panic. But I tell you what, when you look at what's going on in Europe, Obviously, what's going on in Asia, Italy is on full lockdown now. It's not even just a sports thing. It's not just a behind-closed-doors soccer games thing. It's a everybody stay where you are and don't go out and don't interact with other people because we're in a, we're in a very serious situation right now. And uh, not to get too down on that and, and, and stick on dwell on that too much, but look, it's obviously something that we're all dealing with right now. Uh, and and as, the, as the intro song says... Make sure you check yourself. Make sure you are doing what you need to do. Make sure you're washing your hands thoroughly and frequently uh, so we can make sure that this virus does not spread any faster than it, than it needs to. And, and obviously, it's, uh, it's spreading very fast right now. And, and, and make sure you do your homework on it because don't be, don't, be, don't be like these people who are pretty much ignoring it or who don't think it's a big deal or who think, hey, only 1% of people are dying, so it's not even that serious. More people die from the flu. Please, folks, do some homework, do some research, do some reading, do some mild Google searching to get some facts because i tell you right now, it's not as simple as, oh, this is just like the flu. It really isn't. So I'll leave it at that because I don't want to turn everybody off. We do want to talk some soccer, and there is enough to talk about. Um, starting off with the U.S. under-23 men's national team, the Olympic qualifying squad was announced on, on Sunday. Actually, it was announced on Monday because it was so late that uh, on Sunday night um, that it was announced. It was not announced at halftime of the LAFC Philadelphia Union game, which was the game of the week. Uh, for those of you who stayed up late enough to watch it, um, it was a super, super late kickoff, and uh, but it was well worth it. It was well worth for for those of you on the East Coast who stayed up to watch it. It had great goals. It was a great, great uh, just spectacle. It wasn't it wasn't a showcase in defending. No, I know, I know. There's always the people who always have to ruin it and say, oh, but the defending, oh, the goalkeeping. Oh, listen, it was a fun game. Some amazing goals. And how about that Jacob Klesnes golasso from 40 yards out? We'll talk about that later in the show, but getting sidetracked a bit here. The Olympic qualifying team was announced, and there were no real surprises. There weren't any any real surprises to the group. Uh, we all kind of knew that, that Reggie Cannon would be part of the group and Jackson Ewell would be part of it. Um, if there was a surprise, it was with the number of European-based players. There were there were four European-based players, uh, one Liga Mekis player, Sebastian Sosedo. And if you were paying attention and if you were reading SBI, you would know you would have known in January that 
there were going to be European based players in this mix, in this group. And, you know, Christ, Jason Christ, the, uh, the U23 coach told me back in January that he felt pretty good about getting some players released. And he did get some players released from European clubs. Uh, Ulysses Yanez, no surprise there. Obviously the fact that he was part of the January U uh, senior team camp kind of gave you some insight into, Hey, listen, Wolfsburg's probably going to let him play in Olympic qualifying. Uh, and then you had the PSV tandem of Richie Ledesma and Chris Gloucester, who both were were included as well. And those are two players who, who could definitely play play important roles in this qualifying campaign. And then you have Eric Palmer Brown, who's actually playing regularly for Austria Vienna on loan from uh, Manchester City. Uh, he's a regular starter there, playing in the Austrian league and doing well for himself. Uh, Jason Kreis went to see him in Austria, and when when he did that, it was pretty clear something's up here probably going to see Eric Palmer Brown be part of the Olympic qualifying setup. And it's that's a huge one. That's a huge one because, he's, as I said, he is playing regularly in Europe. And European clubs don't have to release players. So the fact that he was released is obviously a huge, huge win for this, this team because Palmer Brown, with the experience that he has, I mean, let's not forget, he was a former U.S. Uh, under-20 national team captain. Um, with his experience, his versatility, uh, you have to think he plugs right into the heart of the central defense uh, for this U.S. team. And look, there's no Miles Robinson. He's still out injured. And even if if Miles Robinson was healthy, uh, Atlanta United probably doesn't even release him for this tournament. So having an Eric Palmer Brown is huge. And um, it's a it's a good group. It's a good group. Um, when you look at the the amount of first team playing time that that this group has. There's never been a team, there's never been a U23 team that has had this much experience already in top to bottom. Obviously, the goalkeeper position, uh, it's you're, you're always going to be light on ex- experience in the goalkeeping department when you talk about U23s, just because goalkeepers don't generally play um, that much or that early in their career. Uh, funny enough, the goalkeeper with the most matches first team experience is the youngest goalkeeper in the group David Ochoa who I, I mean, I've, I've talked about before he is a top top prospect I thought he might win the starting job for Real Salt Lake he didn't win out Zach McMath is the starter for Real Salt Lake for now uh, but I tell you what Ochoa has some good qualities and it wouldn't shock me at all if he ends up being the starter even though He's the youngest of the three uh, goalkeepers, uh, JT Marcinkowski. I know a lot of people fi- feel like he's probably the starter, or he, he probably will be. And then you also have Matt Fries of the Philadelphia Union. But I think I tell you what, Ochoa, uh, Jason Christ. I've spoken to Jason Christ about Ochoa. He's he's really high on him. And 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 when you think about just the program itself, to ha- to have a player that age. I mean, just last summer he was playing in the Under Twenty World Cup and, and playing important matches, and he was the youngest goalkeeper on that team, if I recall correctly. So he's uh, he's no stranger to having. To step up and be the youngest kid on a team, youngest player on a team, youngest starter. I mean, he started for Real Monarchs uh, and on their run to the USL championship title. So he has, he not only has first team experience, he actually has won a title already as a professional. A professional starter, he already has a winner's medal on his resume. So um, maybe if that's the weakest position, you're doing all right for yourself. But, uh, you know, I was able to ask Jason Christ uh, about this team and about some of the uh, uh, issues relating to this team and the and two topics that I, that I definitely had to ask him about. One is the defense, which I tell you what is easily by a mile the most experienced group that the U23s have ever had, the U.S. under-20s have ever had. And when people ask why has the team not qualified in the last couple of cycles, a big part of that is obviously overall experience and overall lack of experience. 
but also overall lack of experience defensively. And that's not an issue this time around. This time around, you have uh, a group of guys, a group of, of defenders who are all who all have first team experience. And of the actually of the group, I'd say Chris Gloucester is the only one who doesn't have actual first team experience. But he he has been playing in the Dutch second division. He's been starting regularly there. But when you look at Reggie Cannon, Justin Glad, Aaron Herrera. Mark McKenzie, and Eric Palmer-Brown, each of those players has at least one season of as a regular starter, one season as a starter in a first-team setup. So um, that if you're Jason Christ, you have to feel really good about that that group. And uh, I obviously had to ask him about that in, uh, when, when, when they announced the roster and, and Jason Christ uh, spoke to the media in a conference call. And I asked him about that, and I also asked him about uh, Sebastian Salcedo. As far as the defense goes, in past cycles, we've seen seen situations where there wasn't a lot of experience in the defensive units, and, and your group has a ton of experience all across the board in terms of first-team games. How important is that going to be for you to get through this tournament? First and foremost, I think when you think about young central defenders, you want to jump right into the same category as young goalkeepers, and I think it's the expectation or sort of the, the norm would be that those players aren't getting a lot of first-team matches. Is we have a different situation here. We have a plethora of central defenders that are getting a lot of um, first-team matches, as well as our outside backs are in the same situation. So I really feel like it's one of the strongest and deepest areas of this team, uh, and I'm really pleased about that. And as far as Salcedo goes, I mean, he's really taken off since he's moved to Pumas. He's really, you know, playing well and, and getting regular playing time. What have you thought of his development? And were you surprised that Pumas actually let him go, considering he has become a part of their first-team setup? Um, Sebastian Salcedo has, has done a really nice job of integrating into a new league, into a new team in a, in a hurry. Um, and I spoke with him, and he's, he's taken some real, um, some real learning steps over the past couple of months. He's performing extremely well, uh, and he, he plans to be, or I plan to have him be a big part of this qualification process. And then the last question about you know being surprised, no, I'm not. I mean, in communication with their club, essentially they said he was a player that wouldn't be able to join us until after next weekend um, because that was going to be the policy for all of the under-23 Mexican, Mexican players. Uh, so it seems to be a policy that the Mexican League has worked out with the Federation that they would release all the players except it can't be until after the matches on the 14th. Now, Christ wouldn't get into the details about players that that were not released uh, for the tournament. He he wasn't about to out uh, the the teams, uh, but it's pretty it's pretty obvious who some of these teams were uh, when you look at the roster and you look who wasn't part of this group. Uh, New York City FC uh, with Keaton Parks and James Sands. Obviously, the NYCFC is currently involved in in Concacaf Champions League, so with their schedule, you can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to release. Uh, two players who are currently starters. And that's not to say there's a guarantee that Sands was even going to be part of this team. But Keaton Parks, you have to think, would have absolutely been part of this U23 setup if he had been available. But NYCFC, I think, is an obvious one. The Colorado Rapids with Sam Vines, uh, a player who, who showed well in the January camp with the full senior team. You have to think that uh, he is someone who, who Christ was looking at to bring into this group. But obviously with him out, uh, give some other players an opportunity, uh, like a Gloucester and, and also like Aaron Herrera, who uh, can play right back and left back. So the U.S. is going to be okay as far as that goes. But uh, obviously Atlanta United, uh, it's well chronicled uh, that they just won't release players that they don't have to release. So that's probably why, or a safe bet, that's why Brooks Lennon, Brooks Lennon is not part of this group. You have to think Brooks Lennon also uh, would have been part of this setup. Atlanta, another team that's competing in CONCACAF Champions League. So 
you know, they, they, they're pretty shorthanded as it is, obviously with some injuries of their own. So you can kind of understand why they wouldn't want to release players anyway. Um, so, yeah, so there, there, were, there were a few teams, and, and that's in MLS. And, again, it's surprising. It's not even that it's surprising, but it's just we've gotten so used to MLS just blanket releasing players uh, over, over, the, over the past however many cycles um, since MLS has been around. It's always, it was always kind of just take it for granted that MLS teams would release their players. And obviously things are different now. You have a lot more teams now, teams that have to worry about their own, their own situations and competing on multiple fronts. So uh, on one hand, I do get it. I, do, I understand it. I understand why some teams do it. But at the same time, I do believe it's short-sighted. I do believe in some instances it can absolutely be short-sighted. And it is interesting that some teams, like uh, the Philadelphia Union, FC Dallas, obviously, uh, Real Salt Lake, you know, these teams, they, they're they in that situation. They, they're losing players. They're losing starters. But they, they, uh, they see it. They see the big picture. They see the the value in it of getting their players, their va- the value in getting their players experience on the international stage and also exposure on the international stage because, you know, it help, it can help uh, improve them as players but also as prospects in terms of potentially selling these players. So I think for those teams that, that, are, are, that are not allowing players to play in, in, in Olympic qualifying, uh, I get it on one hand, but at the same time, it, it, like it, in certain situations, it, I, I get some teams having a much better excuse than others for doing it. Um, but clearly some teams, they just don't care. Some teams are just like, look, we're going to do what we're going to do. We don't care about the U.S. national team. We care about our club. So it is what it is, and that's 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 what you're going to deal with when you're talking about a tournament that's not covered uh, by the FIFA window. Now, as far as this tournament, uh, the Olympic qualifying tournament down in Guadalajara, uh, again, this is another another one where you're kind of wondering, will this tournament actually happen with everything going on with the coronavirus and and Guadalajara uh, is is has become a, a city where there are cases and there are there is a, a bit of a I don't want to say outbreak but there there are more and more cases coming out of, of Guadalajara of coronavirus uh, positive tests so you wonder what's going to happen there in the next couple of weeks I was supposed to go down and uh, and cover the Olympic qualifying tournament uh, I had to cancel those plans uh, as well as my uh, my plan to go down to Miami to cover the uh, Inter Miami home opener, I was I was all set. I had my flight booked, and and obviously with everything going on, it's not a good time to be going to airports, folks. Uh, uh, you you can call it uh, being overly cautious, but I tell you what, it's uh, it's not a game right now. It's not a, it's not a it's not a good time to travel, uh, and I think more and more people are figuring that out, which is why now you're starting to see mass cancellations. I mean, you're, you're like now with the Europa League, as I'm recording this uh, recently, it was announced that, that the, the games between uh, the Italian teams and Spanish teams are being postponed to Serie, uh, the Europa League matches, uh, Roma, uh, Roma, Roma, Sevilla and Hetafe and Inter Milan, both those matches were postponed. And, you know, these teams can't even travel to these other countries. They're like their their flights are not even allowed to land in these other countries. So. Uh, you know, I, I wish I could go down to Mexico um, for that because I think this is actually going to be a good tournament. If it's played, I think it's going to be a good showcase for this U.S. under-23 team because this team, it, as I said, is a very good team. And when you look at pa- the past couple of cycles, the 2012 team that didn't qualify, uh, that team had Freddie Adu, it had Bill Hamid and Sean Johnson and Ike Parra. Um, that team lost in in the qualifying tournament. They they didn't even get out of their qualifying group 
in the tournament, let alone it wasn't like they lost in the, in the semifinal. They didn't even get out of the group, uh, and that was a pretty shocking uh situation there and then obviously in 2016 they they didn't qualify uh in the tournament itself but then they went to the playoff and they lost to Colombia and again both those teams they had some players on them they had you know the 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 2016 team had had Zach Steffen and Jordan Morris um but they they again much like the 2012 team uh, a lack of experience defensively and I think that's why this team for me I feel like it's a very safe bet that they qualify now just qualifying is one thing, and I know we, we can't take it for granted given the fact that the U.S. has missed out on three of the past four Olympics. Um, what's going to determine if this is just a team that qualifies or a team that dominates and scores goals and plays beautiful soccer? It's going to come down to the attack. And I tell you what, there's some very good attacking talent in this group. When you talk about Saucedo, who's, who's really... Uh, really turned it on since he's made the move to Pumas uh, down, uh, down in Mexico. Uh, he made, he transferred from he left uh, Real Salt Lake and and went to to Pumas. He's done really well for himself. And obviously Jesus Ferreira, who who is now eligible for the U.S., he made his debut with the national team in January. And then Ulianes, who uh, who scored, who made his national team debut and scored a goal in his debut. Uh, the, you know these are two young talents who who you're excited to see what they do. And I think between them and between and, and Richie Ledesma, I really want to see what Ledesma can do. And with the form that he's been in, uh, all signs are that he's been doing really well in the Netherlands for PSV's second team, Young Ajax in the, in the Dutch second division. Uh, so you want to see how those players perform in in a tournament where where it matters. This is this is a big this is a big deal here. And, and some of these guys have experience having played in the under 20 World Cup. So it's not this is not some new experience for them to compete. Uh, with something on the line. So, and and I think it's interesting that when you talk about this team, this under-23 team has eight players who were age-eligible for the last under-20 cycle. And that includes six players from the under-20 World Cup team. And then you also have um, Brendan Aronson, who actually was age-eligible but did not was did not make the under-20 World Cup team. And he's obviously been, been, been lighting it up. Um, so when you think about that group, and eight of these players are on the younger side of things. You might think, is this team vulnerable? Is this team maybe a little too young? But the thing is, as young as this team is, these young guys have experience. These young guys are playing games. Brendan Aronson, Brendan Aronson was a starter for the Union last year. He's a starter this year, and he's already off to a good start for the Union this year. So uh, I'm really, I'm really confident that this this team is going to win. This tournament, not, they're not just going to qualify. I think they're going to win. And again, we've heard it before. We've heard about high expectations before. We've seen young U.S. teams and U.S. youth teams go in with high expectations and fall flat on their faces. I get it. And I know there's skepticism, but I actually think this team has what it takes to win. Uh, and as Jason Christ rightly pointed out, there is a certain stigma right now with the, with the men's program. And there's a lot of people who are down on the men's program. But this tournament could be that kind of event that helps turn things around, and, and Christ definitely believes that, and he sees that. He sees the opportunity for that to happen. I think it's incredibly important, um, and I, it's not really what about what I think, uh, to be honest. I, it, what, what's important, what's really important, is what U.S. soccer thinks. Uh, and U.S. soccer thinks that it's very important for us to qualify for this Olympics. They have looked at these, these past couple of cycles and look at that as a failure. Um, and so it's something that we want to correct, and we want to correct it together. 
Um, and so I'm, I'm really pleased about that. Um, really, really look at this as a tremendous opportunity. Um, I think that this is a huge opportunity that stands in front of us, and it, it's a. Uh, it's a chance for us to have a positive rhetoric around something in, in the men's side of U.S. soccer right now. Uh, and so we're looking at this as, as, as an awesome experience and an awesome opportunity, and, and we hope that we can, we can really have a, a positive performance here and qualify for the Olympics. This is, this is just how I look at it. You know, I just look at it that there's been a lot of, um, a lot of doubting in the past, I don't know what to call it, two years, right? Um, about you know where where the where the the men's side of the youth national team where the men's side of the full national team where are we going with all of this and I look at this group of, of young players I have really since the very beginning and I'm extremely excited about what the future holds uh, for the national teams of, of the USA uh, and so I think that this I look at this and just say this is a tremendous opportunity for us to really put a flag down and say we are moving in a positive direction it may not may not be happening as fast as everybody wants it to. Um, but I think we have got, we've got a real plan in place and we've got a, some real terrific leadership in place that's leading us to, to a very good spot. Uh, and I, again, this is just an, I see this as just an opportunity for us to, to champion a little bit of the rhetoric right now. Moving on to the U.S. men's national team. And as of Wednesday afternoon, we uh, are still on for the friendlies. Uh, against the Netherlands and Wales, although with everything going on in Europe right now, you have to wonder if that could change. And we don't know at this point if it can change or will change, but for now we can just think about the possibility. And if these games do happen, obviously they're going to be important for Greg Berhalter as he tries to put his team together ahead of a, a very busy part of the year when you talk about Nations League in June and World Cup qualifying in the second half of the year. Uh, and if you're Greg Berhalter, you're feeling pretty good about the way the past weekend went when you look at, at the rash of goals that we saw. Josh Sargent, Weston McKinney, Matt Miazga all scored goals uh, this past weekend. And, and uh, of all those performances, you have to say that Weston McKinney, for me, had the most impressive performance of the weekend, uh, turning in a really strong outing for Schalke and scoring his first goal since 2018. And he's a player who obviously is very important to the U.S. setup. And you know, there's, there's, it's been a, it's been a bit of a rocky kind of stop and start uh, situation with him in terms of his overall impact with the national team. Now, the talent's there. There's no denying that. We've seen it. We've seen the quality. But you know, obviously, when you think about role, what role he plays and what role is best suited for him, and 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 obviously, Greg Berhalter sees him in 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 the dual ten roles. Although with uh, with Schalke, he, he's played all over, but now he's kind of settled into a bit of more of a defensive role. Uh, you just wonder where he settles in. And you don't see, he's not going to play as a number six, right, in, in Berhalter's system. We're not going to see that. We're going to have to see him in one of these dual 10 roles. And the question becomes then, who do you partner him with? And with Christian Pulisic, who can obviously help you on the wing, can help you uh, in, in the middle. Uh, I used to think that the McKinney-Pulisic Tyler Adams triangle was kind of inevitable, uh, but more and more it feels like I think we're going to see Weston McKinney and Tyler Adams partnered together in advanced roles. Now, I know neither of them is a pure attacking midfielder. So from that standpoint, people might say, well, why would Greg Berhold play those two guys together in in the dual 10 roles. Um, I think the reason for that is because I just, I personally think that, that Berhalter prefers having a number six who is more of a distributor, more of an organizer, someone who can hold the ball and keep the ball. And I don't know 
I don't know if Berhalter's convinced that Tyler Adams can be, play that role in the way he wants it played. And I know some people are going to think that's crazy because, look, Tyler Adams can play, if he can play for RB Leipzig when healthy as a number six, why in the world can't he play for, for the U.S. national team as number six? Now, obviously, the systems are different. Systems are very different. And that's what it really comes down to. But at the same time, if you play Tyler, Tyler Adams in a, a more advanced role where he can kind of give you that two-way play, where he can be a box-to-box player, where he can have that versatility to attack when, the, when things are calling for him to attack and also sit back and join, uh, join whoever the number six is and then kind of have that double pivot uh, midfield where you have the two number sixes, then you kind of understand it. You can kind of see why maybe we are going to see Tyler Adams in that more advanced role. Now, Greg Berhalter hasn't come out and said that. He hasn't come out and said it, but reading between the lines and the things he says and doesn't say, uh, having, having heard him respond to questions in recent months and weeks, I get that sense. I get that sense that he sees Tyler Adams being more effective in, it more, in, a, in a more advanced role. You get him further up the field, he can cover so much ground that you know what? You don't have to start him deeper. You just start him in the advanced role, let him pressure from the front, and let him get into the attack from the front. And I think that 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 was why we saw Tyler Adams uh, in that kind of hybrid right back role because I, when when he first when Berhalter first got to look at Tyler Adams because I think he saw the possibilities there of getting him into the attack and giving him that that freedom to kind of not only work the wing but also float in centrally and and help the midfield there. I think he. I think he gets the value of Tyler Adams. I think he understands it. And I know that's the big fear among U.S. fans when when the whole right-back experiment was happening um, was that sense that, wait a minute, does he not understand what Tyler Adams means to this program, what he can do? I think he gets it. I think... I think Berhalter totally understands the the the, the value of that of, of Adams and how unique he is. I just think what the challenge the challenge for Berhalter is fitting that fitting Adams his skill sets his strengths fitting them in most effectively in his system. And I know people that oh, there's a whole other argument about whether we should even the U.S. national team should even be playing this system. But listen, it's his system. It's the way he wants to play. Deal with it. So now it becomes once you've established that that's the, how he's going to play. Then the question becomes, how do you fit these pieces in? And Tyler Adams is such a such a valuable piece, right? So I I don't I personally don't have a problem with that. If you potentially see McKinney and Adams in a more advanced role, and then someone then it becomes who who can be that number six? Who can be that distributor in the back? Uh, I know. <laughs> funny enough, Darns and Nagby, someone like Darns and Nagby would be the perfect player for that role. But obviously, Darnton Nagby isn't really interested in playing for the national team right now. And there's no one like Darnton Nagby. There's no one else like him. Uh, sorry to say, there's in the in the U.S. player pool, there just isn't. Uh, Jackson Ewell is an interesting player. He gives you some good qualities. He could fit into that role. Is he a, maybe a little limited um, athletically? I, I think you can argue that. I think I think you wonder, can he cover the kind of ground that a Tyler Adams could cover in that role? Um so for me, I mean, would I play Adams there? I would play Adams as the six. I would. That would just be me. But, you know, it's not I don't it's not my system. So, uh, you know, we haven't had our our workshop session with Greg Berhalter where he's given us the deep dive explanations into the player profiles for the positions in the system, which I would love to have. And we've talked about in the past them doing uh, maybe then I'd have a better understanding of, of, of kind of why we can't see a Tyler Adams as a number six. Um 
but me personally, I would play him at the number six. I would, and then look into all these up and coming attacking midfielders that you have in the player pool. When you talk about Richie Ledesma, um, Alex Mendez, Brendan Aronson, uh, Paxton Pomacall. I mean, all these guys, none of those guys are number sixes for one, right? None of those guys, none of those guys are giving, are going to be able to give you what you need in, in that deeper play, deeper midfield role. But all those guys can play as attacking midfielders. All those guys could handle the role of the dual 10, right? So for me, why would you take Tyler Adams, who's your kind of guy who, for me, no question about it, can play as a six? Why would you not consider moving him back? And maybe we will see that. Maybe once we see some of these other, once we see that wave of playmakers, that wave of, uh, that I just mentioned, Ledesma, Mendez, Aronson, Pomikov, Mihailovic, once we see more of those players take that next step forward, I mean, once Rich, once Ledesma is starting for PSV, and, and and gets and matures to that point. Once Alex Mendez breaks through at Ajax and is playing in their midfield, I mean that's when things have to change. That's when if you're a broholder, then you have to look at it and say, I gotta find a way to get these guys on the field. But we're not there yet. And and I think that's why he's looking at it from the standpoint of how can things be in when World Cup qualifying starts um, and what can be my most effective group when World Cup qualifying starts. And if you think about it, Having McKinney and Adams as your dual tens with their ability with their ability to cover ground, pressure defensively, um, all of a sudden you're saying, wait a minute, we we have a setup that could actually really press people and really put pressure on opposing opposing uh, defenses. Um, so that 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 from that from that standpoint, I I kind of get it. I kind of get it. So I think that's why we're going to see that. Now, does that mean that's what it will be for the rest of the next cycle? I don't think that's the case, but I think right now Berhalter has to think about kind of short-term solutions and short-to-medium-range solutions. And maybe from that standpoint, I can kind of understand it, but only if you actually believe you have a number six to plug in. Who's your number six? Is it Jackson Ewell? I don't, I'm not completely sold on Jackson Ewell. I think he sh- he's made amazing strides in the past year. It's clear. Matias Almeida has had an unbelievable impact on Ewell as a player, and we've seen him grow. So if Berhalter believes Ewell, Ewell is that guy, or if Berhalter believes there's still something left in the tank for Michael Bradley when Michael Bradley comes back, then I guess you could kind of see it. Um, but uh, I can understand why people aren't necessarily convinced of either of those things being the case. Moving on to MLS, and week two was a pretty good week of action. Usually the beginning of the season is is some ugly play and sometimes some forgettable soccer, but uh, this this week two actually had some really good games, and and obviously LAFC, Philadelphia Union was the headliner. It was the game of the week, 3-3 draw, and for those of you who missed it, who were sleeping, and I know that's a lot of you because the game ended at 1 a.m. Eastern time, uh, I got to give credit to the union. They really just went at LAFC and, you know, you don't see many teams going into Bank of California Stadium and taking it to LAFC. Now, some people may say that's definitely a risky proposition and it's not the most advisable, but I think the union showed that if you have some quality in attack and if you have the, the if, if you buy into that approach of really going after them, you know, you can have some success. Now, obviously, you need your goalkeeper to step up like Andre Blake did. He made eight saves on the day, and they still gave up three goals, which just shows you how 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 tough LAFC is. But I thought the guy, I, I thought the union showed some quality there. I, I thought they showed some heart and some real potential to to be a team that 
uh, is going to make noise in the East. And I know that shouldn't be a surprise considering they, they were they finished third in the East last year and actually were in first place for quite a bit. Um, but obviously the, the, the issue with the union, it continues to be that, you know what, they don't, they're not going to spend millions of dollars to go get these big superstar name players. They're not going to do that. What they're going to do is find good deals and find players who, you know, might not cost as much, but actually could make an impact in the league. And when you look at, uh, Ernst Tanner and the moves that he's already made, uh, with the likes of, of, uh, Casper Shabilko and Kai Wagner, and now this this year with picking up Jacob Glesnes and Jose Martinez, you're talking about some players that, you know, clearly uh, there there's some quality there. And the way it's coming together with Jim Curtin, I think I think they have a – there's some signs there that this is going to be a good another good year for the union. Are they going to win an MLS Cup? I wouldn't go that far. I don't, I don't – I think they're still a step short of that. But at the end of the day, it's not – you know, for every team, it's not a case of MLS Cup or bust. Uh, either you win the title or it's terrible. I think the Union are a perfect example of a team that you know has a certain amount, that they have a certain amount of resources. They're they don't ha- they're not going to spend you know fifty million on players or forty million on transfers or however much it, you know maybe an Atlanta would spend or TFC has spent in the past or LA, or LAFC has spent, but they are going to be smart. And they're going to be well run, well coached, and and they're going to be a lot to deal with. So I think that's what you're going to see from this union team. As far as LEFC goes, I still think they're the class of the league, uh, as they showed against Club Leon in the, in the Champions League, the, that just unbelievable comeback on their part. Uh, was this their best game against the union? No, by no means was it. But they show you when they you know when you challenge them, they'll they'll come right back at you and. Uh, Part of me was wondering, is this going to end up hurting them going into their matchup against Cruz Azul, getting pushed to the brink by a gal- by a union team? I keep wanting to say Galaxy for some reason. Uh, getting pushed by a union team the way they, they, they were. And actually, I think it's going to end up working out in their favor to have been pushed the way they were pushed by the union. Um, because you, you know what? You don't want to uh, have a pushover game and have it be so easy. And then you go up against the first team, first place team in La Liga, um, in Liga Mekis, and get torn to shreds. Uh, I think, if anything, the Union were a great, uh, great warm up match for them to go going into that Champions League game. Um, and when you look at MLS Week Two, uh, some of the bigger storylines: LA Galaxy. What is going on with the LA Galaxy? They are at home playing the Vancouver Whitecaps, probably the biggest favorite of the weekend. Uh, in their home in their home opener, and they just completely lay an egg. They lose one zero to the White Caps. Credit to Mark Mark DeSantos uh, getting his team off the mat. They had a disappointing opener, opening loss to Sporting Kansas City. They come back out. They did. It wasn't a fluke, folks. They outplayed the Galaxy. They deserve that win. Galaxy just lay an egg at home, and now after what was an incomplete performance in Houston against the Dynamo to come home and lay that egg, it, then you you have to start asking questions now. And of course. Chicharito Hernandez is going to uh, bear the brunt of of the criticism because again he's the big money striker he's brought in to score goals and he's just ha- he just hasn't had much of an impact and for me I, I as much as I agree yes you know he definitely should shoulder some of the blame but for me the Galaxy the supporting cast and the Galaxy as a team you have to ask yourself where is where's the quality where's the quality and where is that all you heard leading up to the start of the season was how happy these guys were 
that Zlatan Ibrahimovic was gone. How relieved they were that now they could be a team and they don't have to be in the shadow of Zlatan and they don't have to carry a player who doesn't play both ways. I mean, they really, the, the sentiment coming out of the Galaxy camp from the players was that they were good, they were glad to be rid of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, right? And this isn't to say that there isn't some some validity to the concerns and some validity to the criticisms, but guess what, folks? If you are going to sit there and say, thank God Zlatan's gone, thank goodness, now we can be a team, now we can actually play as a group and be 11 players and not just be one player plus 10, if you're going to say all that, you have to actually deliver when it's your turn, when you are, when it's, when you have the spotlight. Zlatan isn't in the spotlight anymore. Zlatan isn't there to, to take all the pressure and isn't there to deliver the, the magic goal and isn't there to be the so-called anchor that weighs you down. And that's not that I'm not sitting here acting like that's not there. What there isn't truth to some of some of those criticisms. I totally get that. I totally get the challenges of having someone like Zlatan on your team, uh, as the 2019 Galaxy had challenges with Zlatan as a player because he gives you magic, but he's also a liability in some ways. I get that. But now that he's gone, and now that you, you know you as a team have come out and, and, and let everyone know how happy you are that he's gone and how happy you are that Chicharito is there now and and with, with what he gives you and how he's a team player and how he gives you work rate and how it feels like 11 players now— if, if that's all, if all that's the case, then play like that. Show it. Let's see some combination play. Let's see some soccer. We the galaxy as much money as 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 you know when you talk about Christian Pavon, Sebastian Lejet, uh, Alexander Katai, uh, Sasha Kleshton. Did I say Kleshton twice? I don't remember. But all those pieces and then Chicharito, you need to be creating some chances, folks. You cannot be getting shut out at home. By the Whitecaps, and no disrespect to the Whitecaps, they stepped up, had a really good game, their defense really performed well, Andy Rose, Ali Adnan, outstanding performances, all credit to those guys, but if you're the Galaxy with that firepower, with those names, you better create more chances than they created, and through two games of this season, all the Galaxy attack has to show for two games in 180 minutes is one Christian Pavon Golasso. That wasn't a team goal. It wasn't a well-worked, you know, combination uh, goal. It was David Bingham booming it down the field and Christian Pavone working his magic goal. In 180 minutes and from the millions of dollars that it costs to put this attack together, that's what you get over two games. I know it's early. I get it. I know it's early. So it's it, it, am I going to sit here and say they're done, they're cooked, they're, we're not going to see it from them? Maybe we will. But. If you're if you're gonna if you're gonna come out there and paint Zlatan as the villain or paint paint Zlatan as the reason that the team struggled, it's fine to do it. But guess what? Now it's on you to show that he was the problem. It's it's up to you as a team. Those of you who were on the team last year and, and most of this team, most of this Galaxy team was there last year. It's on you to show us that, to show us the difference, to show us oh this is what a team's like that doesn't have a, a black hole in the middle of it. Where's that team? I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. The fan, the Galaxy fans sure as heck haven't seen it yet. And uh, and now there's some real questions because, you know what, it's not just about the, the, the players. And it's not just about the with Leggett or Kleshin, although Kleshin wasn't there last year, to be fair. Um, Pavone, Katai, Katai wasn't there last year either. But it's not just on those guys. How about Guillermo Barros Schelotto? At, at, at some point, Guillermo Barros Schelotto has to start feeling that pressure. 
because as much as there was a lot of fanfare when he came in, and he was, look, he was a great player, absolutely legendary player. The Columbus Crew, he, he won MLS Cup with them. That 08 Columbus Crew team was one of the better teams to play in MLS. That was a fun team that year. But as a manager, he hasn't proven himself yet. I know he managed in Argentina. He managed Boca Juniors. Um, it's not like he's, you know, had no experience. He had experience, but there were questions even in South America about his managerial experience and, or not experience, but his quality. Is he a good coach? And for me, the jury is still out on that. And as much as last year, you could kind of chalk it up to, hey, look, he took over a team with a player that clearly, you, it wasn't like Schelotto went and got Zlatan. He just had to manage and deal with Zlatan. And, and, and that kind of personality in the locker room is going to make t- things tough for any manager. Um, maybe, you know, obviously like the Mourinho's and Jurgen Klopp's of the world can deal with Zlatan, but it's not easy. Well, guess what? Zlatan's gone now. And there are no excuses for Guillermo Berskelotto to get to not be able to get this team to play better. And if the team doesn't start getting the results, at what point do you start pointing the finger at Scalotto? He's going to have to start bearing the brunt of that. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Now, now the Galaxy they go to they go to Miami. They play an 0-2 Inter Miami team that's much better than their 0-2 record would suggest. And now we're going to see because Inter Miami with their manager Diego Alonso Diego Alonso has shown himself to be a good manager. He he has the track record, he's won titles. Uh he he is the credentials are there, the quality is there as a manager. So listen, if if Inter Miami beats the Galaxy, if Alonso outcoaches Scalotto and it's not and it's pretty clear that he does that, that's just going to raise more and more questions. So it's up to the Galaxy and it's up to Scalotto to turn things around. There's no excuses. The quality is there. It's not about the defense, it's not about any of that. The quality is there. They have to get better. Now, two teams we need to talk about that have gotten off to outstanding starts and deserve some credit are Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota United. Now, Minnesota United, you could argue, has uh, has really gotten off to the best start in the league because they had two road games to start the season against two teams, neither of which would you, you would call a bottom feeder, expansion, cellar dweller type, like, a, you know, FC Cincinnati. Um they go and beat Portland in Portland, and then they go to San Jose in a game that I, I mean, me personally, I picked San Jose to win, but I thought Minnesota would could very easily beat them. And they, they didn't just beat San Jose. They pummeled them. They beat them 5-2, and obviously you, you can get into the expected goals side of things and say, hey, look, it wasn't as lopsided as the score would indicate. San Jose created chances, yada, yada. I get all that. But Minnesota United, you put five goals on a team on the road, you're doing some things. And credit to... Adrian Heath and his team, uh, obviously, there were some questions coming into the year. Would, would they get? Would they add the pieces that they would need to take the step up? And obviously, they're still looking for a playmaker. But uh, they, they, some of the players that they already had in Ethan Finley and Kevin Molino have, have shown themselves to be ready to have bounce-back years. Obviously, both have had their injury issues, uh, and they both have become a bit of forgotten players, but they still bring quality to the table, and, and, they're, and they're showing... That they can that e- even though they were already on the team, it's almost like you're adding adding some impact players by having those guys get back to their their previous form. So I think it's bad. That's been great. Now, obviously, against San Jose, the two players that stood out for Minnesota were Jan Gregus and Ike Opara. Ike Opara, how about Ike Opara? Scores two goals against his former team. And uh, you have to, you know, I know people always say like, well, why doesn't this guy get a look from the national team? What's going on? Why? What is it about Ike Opara? He's not 40 years old. He's 30, I think, I believe. He's not He's not old, old. So how? why can't this guy get a look? I mean, it's not like he is horrendous with his feet. 
He can pass the ball. He had to pass the ball. Uh, he's passed the ball. He's shown he can pass the ball. But he's unbelievable in the air. He can be a threat on set pieces. He's not worse on the ball than Walker Zimmerman. So how is Walker Zimmerman getting call-ups? But Ico Parra can't get a, can't get a look. Like I, that, that's, that's an interesting one. It's been – I get it in the past. There's questions about the injuries earlier in his career. Like is he reliable as a – as someone that, you know, can stay healthy. And that I mean, he's been healthy for a while now. He's put he's put a few years together in a row now as being one of the best, if not the best, defender in MLS. So what's up with that? I'd like to see him get a look. I, I think he's still at, at a point where he can help. And with as important as the games are later this year, I, I, I think the whole idea of like not calling in guys who might be too old for the World Cup it might be you might want to put that on hold a bit because look center back is not chock full of just can't miss stud guys who are ready to play right away like right now that are ready to get plugged into the starting lineup there's not that many of them john brooks aaron long you can say mad miazga um and that's walker zimmerman is okay but is walker zimmerman necessarily better than aikopara that that's the question for me um so you know what that's an interesting one but anyway that's a whole nother tangent but Minnesota United, they look very, very good. Uh, and how about Luis Maria, the striker? I said it coming into the season. This is a guy you got to watch out for. He could definitely be a big goal scorer for them. And early signs, he's looking pretty good on that front. So if he becomes the goal scorer that they needed, and they go get that, even if they don't, even if they don't successfully add Reynoso from Boca Juniors, let's say they they fail in that trying to add him, and they're still trying to add him by all accounts, by all reports that are, are going around. If they add Reynoso, with Amarillo, look, Amarillo looking like he's looking, and with Molino and Finley back to their, like, looking like the old Molino and Finley, all of a sudden, Minnesota United is a team you have to look at as, say, obviously the high-rent district, the VIP section, the VIP lounge of the MLS Western Conference, you have LAFC and you have Seattle. That's those two. Those are, they're in, they're in the penthouse. But then that next tier below that, Minnesota United is right there, and they could absolutely push their way up even further if these guys continue to show what they've been showing. Uh, in terms of other, the other team we have to talk about is Sporting Kansas City, and I know you might look at the two wins. They beat Vancouver, they beat Houston, and you might say, man, those teams aren't necessarily good teams, so how much do we want to... How much do we want to put... You know, How much do we want to look into this... How much credit do we want to give Sporting Kansas City for these two wins? I get that. I kind of get it. But at the same time, if you've watched them play and you watch how good some of these new players look for them, Alan Polito, he, we know he's a proven commodity. Like, it's not like he's an unknown. We know what he's about. It's no surprise that he would come in and be a, be a, a good player, right? Now, Gadi Kinda, uh, I tell you what, he is, he's looked unbelievable. I mean, he's a guy who... Uh, as much as that, that midfield needed some energy. That midfield needed needed some legs. That that midfield needed some dynamism, right? And he's brought that. He's absolutely brought that. And I think it's it's infectious. We, not a good time to say anything's infectious. I get it. But he he gives you that. He gives you that energy. That energy in the midfield that that brings everyone else up. And between Kinda. And Polito, they and Kyrie Shelton. Now Kyrie Shelton, it, it, he's kind of gotten overlooked here because obviously Polito's the, the high-profile name. Gadi Kinda has got the the funny name Kinda because it's spelled like kinda. Um, but Kyrie Shelton has actually been uh, been great through the first two weeks of the season. So he his uh, his return from Europe didn't get many headlines, but 
he looks good. He 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 is playing the best soccer we've ever seen him play in MLS. And I know that's not a huge, that's not an, a, a, a crazy high bar. I get it. But if he continues to play like that between him, Polito, and Kinda, and, and the way they're looking, Sporting Kansas City right there for a turnaround season. And we knew that coming in that they could potentially be one of these teams that really, really turns it around. And right now they're looking like that team. In terms of other performances uh, from the week, uh, we'll do kind of the speed round competition or the speed round recap of the of the week one. New England against Chicago. I tell you what, New England, what is up? I think New England could easily be 2-0, but instead they don't have a win yet. They're 0-1-1. Adam Buxa looks legit, but the fire, credit the fire. Even though the fire, they haven't won a game yet. Uh, that team is so thrown together. Uh, it, it, you know, late arriving coach with Raphael Wicke, uh, a lot of pieces that have been thrown together late, uh, late in this process. I, I said it in my preview, my Eastern Conference preview, that the Fire, I thought, were a team that in the second half of the season could really start to show you something because the pieces are there. It's just going to take some time to make it all work. They're, they're showing some signs earlier than I thought they'd show. And they gave, New, they gave New England some issues. Now, if there's a big issue that Chicago has to deal with, it's, for, it's Francisco Cavo continuing, continuing to be a liability. And it boggles my mind because here's a guy who so often, like, he can look up absolutely incredible. But then he just makes these mistakes that just make you say, is he worth having? Is he even worth it? Because it's kind of like, it's like having a great, it's like, like someone giving you the keys to this car and saying, hey, look, this car is great. It drives like a dream. It's amazing. Yeah, but so why are you giving it to me? Well, you know, the brakes don't work all the time. It's like, oh, great. Uh, I'll, I'll be driving along. I'll enjoy it. And then I'll die. And uh, that's the thing with Cavo. Cavo can look great, but then he has these just brain lapses. And it's really going to come down to Raphael Wicke figuring out how he addresses that situation. Because you don't want you don't want to have a situation where where one player, one defender can just bring you down. And, and it, I don't think it's a coincidence that once Minnesota United got rid of Cavo, Things turned around there, they, they, and, and, you know, that was not a coincidence. So, Chicago, you might have a tough decision to make, but you're going to have to make a decision at some point. Uh, moving on, other games of, uh, of note this past week, you had uh, the Red Bulls getting a draw against Real Salt Lake. Uh, it's a good point for them, even though they gave up the goal at the end. Aaron Herrera with a beautiful cross on the, on the equalizer. And in Inter-Miami, uh, they go down to D.C. I was actually at the game, uh, my D.C. United-Inter-Miami. In Miami, I tell you what, they played such a great first half and they showed some real quality, but they couldn't put a second goal on the board and it ended up costing them because the second half, you have the red card to Roman Torres in a game that at that point, it looked like Inter-Miami was taking a 2-0 lead and this was going to be a cruise. They were going to cruise to victory. And then what happens? VAR takes back the goal, gives Roman Torres a red card, and then the wheels fell off. And, you know, credit to DC United because they they smelled the blood in the water. They They took full advantage they hopped all over Miami and that's that I think that was a case where you saw a team an expansion team a new team just not know how to handle some adversity and it was pretty clear at that point the way they were not able to kind of uh stabilize themselves and DC just ran all over them and credit to DC I and my soul look DC for me I think they're still a few pieces away from being a consistently competitive team but I think they showed some real heart in this game and they showed some some fight that is going to keep them in games and it's going to help them get some results like this but they need players obviously you lose Paul Ariola, huge loss they weren't projecting to not be they, they you know he was supposed to be a big part of what they were doing this year so you lose him you they already needed another player or two so then you lose Ariola. now you need at least two uh, two more players when are those players going to arrive that's the question because Ben Olsen uh, you know what he needs more pieces to really be competitive but 
he's got to feel good about getting three points when they didn't really play all that well. One team I definitely wanted to talk about was New York City FC, which went, uh, they went to Toronto and they lost 1-0, uh, a, tough, a tough game for them and a great performance for TFC uh, in what I fully expected to be an, uh, a, a top, top match between two of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. Now, look, I get it. NYCFC, they have Champions League at the middle of the week. They're playing Tigres on, on Wednesday. So you could kind of understand if this was kind of like a, a situation where maybe they were looking ahead. And for me, I was actually surprised that Ronnie Dyla uh, started what was essentially a full-strength squad against Toronto. I thought maybe he would rest some people, but obviously he's trying to get a rhythm for his team. He's trying to keep that group together. And there were enough days between Saturday and Wednesday that he felt good about his team being able to recover. Uh, that being said, you, you, you can't feel good about the fact that you've gone two games now in league play. You're not able to get a goal. Now, against Columbus, you're down a man for most of that match, so you can kind of understand it. But against Toronto, and now Toronto is not a, a juggernaut defensively. I get that. But they're tough at home. And they, But credit to them, they were able to, to, to limit NYCFC's attack. And, and I think that if, if there's an area that you kind of look at and you say, all right, this should, this should be moving a little more smoothly than it is, it's that NYCFC attack. Now, we know they're scoring goals in Champions League against weaker competition. So that you always kind of wonder how you want to, you know, do you take that with a grain of salt? It's not going to be as easy when you go up against the Tigres to, to score the goals that they were scoring in the previous round. Um, but one thing I would say is anyone that's kind of panicking or, in, or, or ready to write NYCFC off because they're 0-2, I think it's crazy, right? The first two games you play, you're on the road against Columbus. Columbus is very good. They're going to be a good team this year. They're going to bounce back from last year. They've added some great play players to that squad. They are going to be a power in, in this year. So you lose to them down a man for most of the match. I don't have an issue with that. Then you go up to Toronto, one of the easily one of the better teams in MLS. You go on the road, you lose a 1-0 game. Two tough games, two tough results. For me, uh, that them being 0-2 doesn't magically tell me that they're necessarily worse than a team that's 2-0. And no knock on, say, the Colorado Rapids, for example. But the Rapids are off to a good start. They have a lot to be happy for. But am I picking the Rapids over NYCFC if they play each other? Absolutely not. Uh, now, there are teams that have started poorly results-wise, but also you see real issues like the Galaxy. I'm not seeing the same kind of issues with NYCFC. I see a team that's just hit a real tough part of its schedule. Uh, the, the schedule makers did them no favors starting them against Columbus and Toronto on the road in the middle of Champions League. But I think they're going to be okay. I don't think it's time to press the panic button. It's still early. Ronnie Dyla has just gotten there. He's been the coach for two months. He's gonna. He's got time to figure things out. Let's wait another couple of weeks before we start saying there's some real issues with NYCFC. And as we wrap up this episode of the SBI show, the last thing we'll touch on is CONCACAF Champions League, which kicks off with the quarterfinals. Actually, the quarterfinals kicked off on Tuesday with the Montreal Impact losing 2-1 at home to CD Olympia. The Honduran team taking it to uh, Thierry Henry's squad, and it was actually Thierry Henry's first loss as manager of the impact. And uh, while they were able to get a goal back with Safir Tadir's unbelievable golasso from 40 yards away, uh, Montreal's in a tough spot now because they're down, uh, they're down a goal and they've given up two away goals to Olympia. So now they have to go down to Honduras and try to win 2-0 or hopefully win 2-1 and then push it to extra time. It's not going to be easy. But look, I think, I think Montreal... They've already done more than any of us expected them to do at the start of this whole project, at the start of this whole Thierry Henry project. Um, I think it's going to take some time for them to really, really come together as a team. 
Now, they've added uh, uh, Victor Waniyama, who I think is going to be a big, big piece for them. If he can stay healthy, he's a he's a you know elite level by MLS standards midfielder. So I think Montreal is going to be a handful. Uh, and their their Champions League run was going to end eventually. No one thought they were going to they were, they were going to work their magic again when the impact made that unbelievable, improbable run to the Champions League final a few years back. I don't see that was never going to happen again. And if anything, if they do wind up being eliminated by Olympia, I think it'll allow them to now focus on MLS and getting into a rhythm as a team. I think they're going to be a fun team to watch under Thierry Henry. The big matches in Champions League are obviously the re- the other matches involving MLS teams. When you talk about LAFC against Cruz Azul, the top team in MLS for my money, the top team in MLS for my money against the current first place team, in Liga Mekis. And as much as the as much as LEFC earned a lot, a lot of credit for the way they beat Club Leon, the way they came back and, and knocked off Club Leon, they need to win this one. They need to beat Cruz Azul to keep to keep adding to that reputation and also to keep adding to the MLS scorecard. Because as we all know, a lot of people look at Champions League as the measuring stick for MLS. And is MLS finally catching up to uh, Liga Mekis? Is it? Are they ever going to be? Are they ever going to pass Liga Mekis? This Champions League, no matter what happens, will not officially mark MLS passing Liga Mekis. That's not happening. But what the results in this tournament can do is show people that the the gap is clearly closing. Because I know a lot of people when they hear the gap is closing, they don't believe it. And I'm telling you, I'm here to tell you. The gap between MLS and Liga Mekis is closing, and it's up to LAFC to show that. It's up to Atlanta United to show that. Atlanta United, uh, they have to go up against Club America in, in, in a really tough matchup, especially without Joseph Martinez. But there, it's going to be a fun one. And Club America has not exactly actually looked. Club America has not looked like. Uh, like this unbeatable force lately. They've looked pretty vulnerable, if anything. So Atlanta has a chance, even though they don't have Joseph Martinez. I think they definitely have a, a chance to, to win that one, especially with Joseph, uh, especially with uh, Pitsy Martinez playing the way he, he's playing right now. So that they're going to be a fun one to watch. And then, of course, NYCFC playing Tigres. And we know NYCFC is not off to the greatest of starts. We know it's not ideal that they have to play the first leg at home at Red Bull Arena. We get that. But Tigres has had a bit of a rough year. So as much as Tigres has tons of quality, as much as they have Andre Pierre Gignac as a guy who could score a hat trick on you in a blink of an eye, NYCFC, I think this could be a series that allows them to really show their quality. And while they've looked a little sleepy in MLS play through the first few weeks of the season, I think there's still there's still too much quality on that NYCFC team for them not to be able to stand toe to toe with Tigres. They're going to give Tigres a series. I don't think I. Do, do, do I think they're going to beat Tigres? I think that's a little tough, but I think they're going to give them a series, and they absolutely could knock them off. I think we just about covered all the topics I was hoping to cover in this episode. We'll be back on Friday. The next episode will drop on Friday while we'll look ahead to the week three of the MLS season. We'll talk a little bit more about the Olympic qualifying as they gear up for the tournament, which starts a week from Friday. We'll also talk a little about national, uh, the U.S. national team and also Americans abroad. We'll see how, how things are looking heading into the weekend uh, as we get closer and closer to what will hopefully still be some friendlies later in the month. Like, of course, we don't know what's going to happen uh, right now in the United States with everything with the coronavirus. It's a safe bet. It's a pretty safe bet that in the coming days, things are going to get worse in terms of more and more people will be have found to have it. It's going to lead to some 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 
postponements, some cancellations. And as of right now, um, things are, are, are somewhat normal in the sense that MLS is still playing its matches. The U.S. women, are, they're still playing their She Believes match as of right now. As, as of Wednesday afternoon, me recording this, they're still playing the match on Wednesday night. Um, and the Olympic qualifying tournament is still a go. And if those things change, we'll talk about that then. But hopefully we're, things stabilize and hopefully the, the this pandemic, and it, it's officially a global pandemic right now, hopefully things can get calm down a bit. Uh, but for now, I would just say to everyone, stay safe. Go get your supplies. Make sure you have your supplies. Don't try to get Lysol because there is none. I, uh, I've officially tried to. I've been able to get everything else I've needed: water, milk, uh, paper, t- uh, you know, toilet paper. You know, everything that everyone's getting. But Lysol, you will not find anywhere. It's crazy. I'm about to order some on eBay for like, you know, forget Yeezys. I'm trying to get Lysol. I might, I might have to trade some Yeezys for Lysol at this point. But uh, uh, it's a crazy time, and, and hopefully we can all get through it. And 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 you know, knock on wood, everyone can 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 stay healthy, and and we can minimize the impact of this of this crazy crazy situation right now and and for me it's 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 all it's all a little too real because you know as i said i you know i was supposed to go to miami this weekend i'm actually i i should have been in miami right now uh, but i had to cancel that trip and also mexico i had to cancel that one and and i don't mind trust me as much as i i would love would rather have been at these games and this we all would prefer none of this to be going on it's easy to say you know what it's better to be safe it's better to just you know what I could be at Red Bull Arena for, for Tigres NYCFC tonight, but I'm going to stay home. I could be at NYCFC FC Dallas on Saturday, which I, as much as I would, I really want to see FC Dallas. I will, and I was hoping to catch up with Luchi Gonzalez. You know what? It's better to be safe than uh, right now. And I tell everyone that's listening to please be safe. I'll continue to bring you... Uh, everything from the world of American soccer, both on this show and also on SBI through our writing on SBI. Make sure you stay tuned there as well. We'll give you all the updates on everything that's going on. Uh, and I tell you what, if soccer stops, if soccer, if soccer ends up being put on hold and there are no matches to play for a while, we can still talk about the game. We can still talk about the players. We can have fun with it. We will have fun with it because you know what? There's gonna, you're going to have a lot of time in your hands. We'll make it work We'll be here. I'll be here uh, to keep you entertained, hopefully. And uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode and hopefully you have enjoyed the show in its return. I, I As I said, I'm still working on getting things rolling, uh, getting guests on and all that. But hopefully we'll get better as time goes on. That's all for now. I'm Ivis Kalarset. This is the SBI Show. <laughs>